Hello, it's Tom Peck here, political sketch writer at The Independent, and welcome to The Independent's Premium Events podcast. In this series, you'll get the chance to listen back to all of the live events that we've put on here at The Indie for our premium subscribers. If you aren't subscribed already, click the link in the description and sign up today for access to loads of exclusive articles, including in-depth analysis, long reads, opinion pieces from people like me and much, much more. As a subscriber, you can attend events like the one you're about to hear for free and get involved with them as well. So make sure you tap the link in the description of this podcast and subscribe to Independent Premium. Uh, good evening, everyone. Um, I think we are we're underway. So um, welcome to this latest instalment in the Independent Premium Virtual Event Series. I am Tom Peck, the Independent's political sketch writer and columnist, and I'll be hosting the event this evening. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Uh, life on Zoom is a, a pale imitation of real life, but there are upsides. There are already more of you on this conference call than we are ever likely to fit into a live event. And regular attendees of the independent live, live politics events might note that partly thanks to coronavirus, this one doesn't clash with an England World Cup semi-final. Uh, so those things don't happen anymore. Not that they were likely to anyway. The other members of the panel are John Rental, the Independent's chief political commentator and domestic brace wearer. Uh, Kate Devlin, the Whitehall editor and lockdown era star signing. And finally, John Stone, former Brussels-based Brexit supremo and now London-based policy editor, although he is, like the rest of us, mainly flat-based for the time being. Um, for the Ask the Experts evening this evening, we will be looking at the politics of the pandemic, how COVID-19 has affected or in fact infected our politics, and also how our politics has affected COVID-19, which arguably is not as much as it should have done. Now, you'll know that you were able to submit questions in advance, and thank you to those that did. We received hundreds, and while there won't be time, mercifully perhaps, to get through all of them, we have chosen our favourites, and we've also tried to make sure that the ones we did choose were generally representative of the kinds of questions that you all sent in. Um, and those of you whose questions have been selected, you should already know about it, and you will be appearing on screen to ask them yourselves um, over video. So kind of like on BBC Question Time, but without the risk of being turned into a viral meme. Um, and throughout the discussion this evening, um, you can enter any questions you want to in the Q&A box. And I know that some of you have already got started on that and uh, notice has been taken. And I'll be doing my best to, to bring those questions into the debate as well. So, so don't be shy on that front. I am watching and I, and I will do my best. So let's just get started, shall we? Uh, the first question, hopefully, is from Andy Knott. Good evening. What, in your view, if anything, given the many ways the Prime Minister has mishandled this pandemic, can he point to as a successful policy or decision? A successful policy? Um, John, rental. Oh, God. I knew you were going to start with me, Tom. Thank you very much. Um, I don't know about the successful policy. Uh, the fact that uh, the Nightingale Hospital, uh, which I sometimes cycle past on my... Uh, on my lockdown cycle rides is completely empty. Uh, it is a sort of success, actually. The fact that they were able to build that thing, uh, but they didn't need it, um, is, um, you know, means it could have been worse. Uh, 
Uh, and if, you know, Neil Ferguson's uh, worst case forecasts had come true, it could have been much, much worse. Um, I mean, I don't know what the, what the Prime Minister's uh, greatest achievement is, but his, his greatest defence is that he took the advice and he acted on the advice of the scientific advisors. And I think that is, that's going to be his, um, his fallback um, in the uh, inquiry, which he confirmed today is, uh, is actually going to happen, public inquiry. Of course, the Independent has reported several times that um, the Nightingale hospitals, um, the, the lots of top London doctors have sort of anonymously told us that actually the, the, the London Nightingale hospital is a bit of a sham and possibly even a political stunt. But nevertheless, the capacity is there to be used. But um, Kate. I, I think this is a great question because I think this is, as John said, um, because the Prime Minister confirmed that we're going to get this inquiry today, I think you know, um, the Great and the Good in Whitehall will also be pondering this question this evening. Um, I think one of the things absolutely that they can point to as a success, at least so far, is the furlough scheme, which has um, helped to make sure that an awful lot of people who would just already be unemployed um, have kept their jobs. I think the problem is what happens from now on. We've already seen uh, an effect this month um, because lots of companies are going to have to soon start paying into the furlough scheme that they are starting to make their um, employees redundant. Has the Chancellor got the date wrong slightly on the, the end of the furlough scheme? I think that remains to be seen. Um, but I think I think that's definitely been a success so far. Um, John Stone, policy, policy editor. I should, of course, have come to you first on all matters of policy. So I apologise. So, John. So, so that's a great question, Andy. I think it, it's, a, it's a very difficult one as well. I, I do think that the government has made a lot of bad calls during the pandemic. But I think you could... I, I agree broadly with what John and Kate said, but I would also say that I think while the government on lockdown itself while the government was very slow in introducing it i think one thing that you can specifically point to is it got the messaging absolutely right initially so it um so the sort of stay inside the rules are very simple you know you can go out to exercise once a day everyone understood it it was very widely complied with even though you know a week before they've been saying this probably won't happen we might not do this for a while they they were able to get people to stay in their homes very quickly and it at, with a with a simple message that was well crafted, and it did appear to you know help uh, reduce the flow of the virus. Now you could contrast that with essentially what happened to the lockdown rules as lockdown progressed. It was it was like one of those games where you just keep adding extra rules until everybody trips up. It's uh, it got a little bit more complicated. I wouldn't even be able to tell you what rules what on any given day because it was you know there were so many different iterations of lockdown after that but everybody will remember the original one which was you know exercise once a day you can go to the shops for essentials and, and you know unless you're an essential work so i think that would be my answer i think the messaging on the original lockdown was uh very well pulled off well that that is an interesting answer john because as um i'm not sure if you know andy john has just come back from four years based in not was it four years three years based in brussels maybe nearly four years yeah. Um, and I remember seeing a video of maybe a month ago, a news report into 
the Belgian lockdown rules, which were insanely complicated, as in you could walk down this side of the street on a Monday, Wednesday and Friday, but not down that side on a Tuesday or a Thursday, but only up, but only past even numbers if you had a cat rather than a dog and so on and so forth. And Belgium is, of course, the only country in terms of the, the most meaningful way of measuring the controlling of the of coronavirus being the per capita uh, fatality rate. Belgium is the only country really that, that, that beats, though that is a grim word to use, the UK. And yet that messaging thing is the thing that you've sort of chosen to be Boris Johnson's biggest success, which I find a little bit surprising personally. I mean, I, I think um, I think it's actually a little bit misleading to look at Belgium because it's um, one of the one of the reasons that they often appeared very high in the stats was because they were doing a much, um, some would say, more honest job of counting fatalities. Um, they were they were counting care homes from very early on, so that gave people that that did you know a lot of the comparisons between countries weren't like for like. Um, I mean, one thing about Belgium and France, they had very similar lockdowns. I know in France certainly you needed an attestation, like a, a certificate, like a um, you had to fill out a form and take it with you when you went for a jog and things like that. It was very complicated, but there was an element of simplicity to the UK rules, which I think um, helped. But it's, the, I think it's the messaging overall that got people to do it straight away. And there were all co these concerns about, um, I mean, if you remember at the beginning, there were concerns that the justification for not going into lockdown was we can't go into lockdown now because people will get bored of it but actually if anything people aren't coming out of lockdown so i mean maybe it was too effective i don't know but yeah um, andy from the way in which your question is phrased may i tentatively suggest that potentially you are in some way skeptical of the way that boris johnson has handled <laughs> Uh, that, that would be entirely fair. Uh, <laughs> is, there any, is there any aspect of it that you would give him credit for? Well, it depends whether you view uh, the whole the financial plan that was put forward by Rishi Sunak as being likely to have been put forward if we hadn't had that particular chancellor. Uh, I don't view that as Boris Johnson's policy. Uh, and, but, you, um, but you do credit it as being a success. Yes, I think, I think it's been quite successful. Um, a number of the policies that were put into place were just put into place a long time after other people, other countries had done them. So, you know, we weren't the only ones to have a furlough scheme. Other people did it before us. Uh, and uh, there are quite a few, you know, lockdown. We were one of the last in. Uh, and a lot of people have said that if we'd been a bit sooner with that, um, then, you know, so, but there aren't any uh, policies which, where we led the way. We well, always I seem might, to be coming in from behind. I might actually ask you, Kate, or you've drawn attention to the furlough scheme. And of course, there's no doubt that the only person really who's emerged with their credibility enhanced from the last four months has been Rishi Sunak. But then there was the OBR report this morning, wasn't there, about £350 billion um, borrowing for this year, I think, and suggestions on the back of it that potentially Rishi Sunak has potentially lost control of the public finances. So this thing that feels like a big success, like the sort of vast spending of money that we don't necessarily have, potentially, maybe in a year's time or less than a year's time, might be viewed less favourably? Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think at the moment, uh, lots of it we do know what the repercussions of it were lots of it we don't i mean there's actually a huge amount of unsecured business loans out there um that if companies decide small firms given 
tens of thousands of pounds. But if lots of them decided to close because the loans are unsecured, that could be quite a big problem for the economy. Um, I think the, I mean, like it's potentially, uh, you know, one parallel you might be able to draw is in 2008, the Irish finance minister was Brian Linehan. And he made a catastrophic decision. He decided that in, he was going to guarantee all the money in the banks. He did that because he thought it was absolutely the right decision for the Irish economy. He thought that was what was needed at that stage to um, give public confidence. If you remember, Gordon Brown did something similar, but he capped it at £75,000. And of course, unfortunately, Brian Lenehan's catastrophic decision led to an IMF bailout. It's what you do when you think you're doing the right thing that can be a problem. Hmm. Well, and I guess on that, that ultimately, I mean, the, the, there was the, the Swedish medical officer who didn't impose lockdown and then said, ultimately, well, we'll only really find out in a year's time if there's any point to this stuff. He slightly backtracked on that. I think it's certainly, we'll be coming on to the possibility of the second wave quite soon, but I think it's probably fair to say, I don't, John, rental that potentially all of all of this discussion about what might have been got right and what might have been gone wrong is very 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 difficult to judge at this depressingly still very early point in the story that that was that was the point i was going to make i mean the, the fact that everyone is praising rishi to the skies makes me feel slightly uneasy um that you know it may not look um anything like as good in a year's time for example i mean it's quite possible that uh, that the furlough scheme, although it, you know, it seems absolutely brilliant and you know, a lot of people very favourable towards it, it may may turn out to have been much too generous in the, in the sense that we may need that that kind of, those kind of resources uh, later on to deal with the economic uh, fallout. I mean, who knows? We we I mean that's the, that's the terrible thing about all that nobody knows. I mean, nobody knows why we had it worse in this country. Although most of the the, the scientists now, although that's not what they said at the time that we, we should have locked down earlier. Uh, but nobody really knows why Sweden, for example, didn't lock down at all and has had, had uh, much, less of a, uh, much less of an outbreak. Well, of course, as our very recently former colleague, George Osborne said, um, any chancellor who is um, overwhelmingly popular is potentially not doing his job as, as it should be done. Um, but thank you very much, Andy. Um, and we will just be ploughing straight on with the next question, I think, which hopefully I don't, I don't press the buttons, but hopefully come from Louise Williams. Hello. Hello. Hi. Um, yeah, my question is: um, the scientists knew that such a pandemic was bound to happen. Why do you think our government didn't take them seriously? Kate, do you think our government? Took, took the scientists seriously or didn't take them seriously? I think, I think it's a fascinating question, isn't it? I think, I think a number of things were happening. I used to be a health reporter and I covered swine flu. And I remember the flu pandemic plan that we had at that stage, which was all about staying in your home and people would drop medicine um, through your door. And was, you know, similar in some ways to lockdown. So I think one of the problems is we did take it seriously, but we thought it was going to be another flu. And we didn't think it was going to be a coronavirus. And that turns out to have been a mistake. I think uh, there is certainly some evidence as well that in the last year, Whitehall was overwhelmed with um, Brexit planning. 
and that other stuff understandably had to had to fall to one side and unfortunately this was one of the things yeah i mean i mean um from a slightly from a personal perspective our job as journalists is to try and you know hold the government to account and i have felt acutely aware over the last four months that i frankly don't have the expertise to start telling the government what they're doing wrong or doing right and specifically when they say we're just following the scientific advice that leads that lands us in a little bit of a hole so but one of the things that really stood out for me over the last four months was Patrick Vallance giving evidence to, I think it was the Health Select Committee, but I can't remember. This was pretty early on, in, I think in April, where he just made very clear, well, look, the scientists don't all agree. I mean, the, the thing about the, the, the government says we're just following the scientific advice, but we pretty much know for certain that the scientific advice comes from SAGE, and SAGE have spent, especially in the early part of the pandemic, arguing about what the best thing to do is. So, it, so we'll see, what, so there will be an element of truth to, to emerge in the, in the coming years, I suspect, through this inquiry that has been committed to today. And there'll be much more digging around and much more granularity with regard to what it means to say we were just following the science. But, I, but I, I, it's, it's clear that the, science, the scientists haven't agreed and probably still don't agree. But I, I'm, I'm interested to see what you think, John Rental. Uh, no, I completely agree with that. And uh, I agree with Kate as well. I mean, the problem with, uh, with uh, it's it's it reminds me so much of the Iraq war the problem is that not that people didn't prepare it's that they were preparing for the wrong thing um, you know in this case we were preparing for a flu a flu pandemic I mean I'm sure we were very well prepared for that I'm not sure we had the because uh, you need PPE for that as well um, and I don't think we had enough um, but it's just like Iraq you know the government prepared for uh, a humanitarian after the invasion they thought they were going to have to feed the whole population uh, they weren't expecting a civil war to break out and um, so the inquiry to going to be uh, remarkably similar in some in, and, and I suspect we'll find that the the politicians and the scientists were preparing for the wrong thing. John Stone who do you think was listening to who and who should have been listening to who? Yeah I, I basically completely agree with what my colleagues said both, both my colleagues said here about uh, Firstly, about the um, about the flu pandemic, yeah, that this is clearly a disease with a very different sort of dynamic to a to a flu, and yeah, to be fair, a pandemic was identified as I think the number one you know national sort of catastrophe threat in their sort of planning exercises they do, and they they'd run all sorts of things. But I also equally think uh, what Kate mentioned about Brexit is absolutely true. I'm, I'm not I'm not one to blame everything on Brexit personally, but I think genuinely what you can absolutely say that it took a large element of the government's bandwidth up i mean we left the european union on uh, you know in sort of february and it was uh, a very that was essentially when the pandemic was kicking off and i remember seeing a notification on my phone saying like oh, i can't remember if it was the first uh, the first pandemic uh, the first uh, case of uh, uh, the um the coronavirus in the UK or something like that, but it was on Brexit Day essentially, and um, mm. thinking, oh god, this this is worryingly like a sort of disaster movie, like Britain heading into a glorious new era, as the sort of television in the background plays something ominous about virus in China. What's going on there? <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I I think there is yeah, there, there's a certain element of yeah, they did. There wasn't. It's not like there was no due diligence being done, 
Um, and but equally, in the sort of shorter, medium term, clearly, I mean, it's not just coronavirus. I mean, pretty much everything has gone by the wayside. To be, uh, it's, it's t- there's no government department that's untouched by preparation for Brexit. Um, I think the government actually, I think Michael Gove actually told the select committee, it would have been in probably in March or April, that um, uh, a number of the officials working on the EU negotiations had been redeployed to coronavirus. And if that's the case in that direction, well, clearly they it would, it, you know, you'd hope that they would have been, it would have been quite useful for them to be working on other issues like clearly it's it's not just that they only have one speciality that they can do like clearly they are actually useful to looking at other challenges the, the country faces and there's been a lot less time left to do that sort of thing so louise from, from your question i mean I, i'm loath to sort of sum up your views for you but is, is it fair for me to suggest that you think that the the the, 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 the advice has been put before ministers the, the right advice or the right guidance or the right warnings and they've fallen on deaf ears um, I think there were um, there were there were warnings. Um, you know, it may be more of uh, a warning against flu than a coronavirus, but I think coronavirus was a possi- you know was did was known as a possibility as well. Um, and I, I believe a body was set up for you know for emergency planning for this type of for a pandemic. But uh, I also believe that it was starved of funds due to austerity and that. Um, supplies of PPE were left to go out of date. So I think, and I do agree that Brexit uh, was one of the, you know, did make things worse by, you know, the government took their eyes off lots of important balls um, over the, or the wrangling over Brexit. I mean, one, one of the things that I have found, I mean, I've sort of already said this, but I've found particularly difficult about writing about coronavirus over the last few months is for a start, anyone would have to be naive you have to almost admit that your judgment of this current government is going to be heavily influenced by your opinion on Brexit now and I I am as as guilty of that as anyone and we're also one of the standout it's still four it's four years ago but but Michael Gove's line about this country has had enough of experts still resonates and it's something that he is we regularly attacking for and quite right too and then you've had this period since since February March, and what I've found really challenging is I, I you know I don't want to be one of the had enough of experts guys. I'm always going to be inclined to side with the scientists over a government which I don't really have very much respect for. And yet there are there have been comments made by those scientists on in news interviews at the Downing Street press briefings. That have aged incredibly badly like, like the, the deputy chief medical officer jenny harris saying that face coverings achieve nothing can actually be counterproductive they can trap the virus inside your mask and do you and do you more harm than good and when when um what, what was the incident when rory stewart was essentially retroactively proved right um and it transpired that on the same day jenny harris had been on the television saying that no no, no we're right not to lock down because we 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 take a balanced approach, and you and and, and she's there, explaining how the, the advice given by Sage to the ministers reflects the need to not not do damage to the economy. And and the, and the chief medical officer Chris Whitty has always said, well, you know, there's medical harm that comes from from economic harm too, and so you have this situation where it feels like a politician's job is to ask the medical experts what they think, and then they make the decision. 
but it feels like from the outside, and of course I don't know, that the, that the scientists have been sort of giving more holistic advice on, on economic damage and on all sorts of things. And it feels potentially just like quite a large mess. And therefore it is just as hard to damn anyone as it, as it is to vindicate anyone. But I suspect the, there will be some more clarity on that in the, in the months and years ahead. I mean, I'll, I'll come back to you, John Rental. I'm, I'm absolutely shocked to discover, Tom, that uh, you don't have much respect for the government. <laughs> you, should, you should write about that, you know, it'd be uh, quite, quite, quite interesting. No, yeah. I think that, that's absolutely right. Um, and um, we, I mean, there's actually a question, a question that's, that's come in about why, you know, asking us why the UK has the second worst or I mean, you know, it's definitely it's obvious that this country has among the worst holes from uh, coronavirus, uh, and I'm afraid you know we're probably not the best panel to to ask that question. I mean, I don't I don't think the scientists even know know that. I mean, but that is the big that's the huge question overhanging all of this is why have different countries experienced it differently? I mean, it's not you know everybody thinks they've got a simple answer, but but there's always a country which uh, which is different and, and stands out and is the, is the exception. I mean, face masks, you know, clearly the scientific evidence is that masks uh, are beneficial, but they're not the whole answer because, you know, there are some countries, I mean, the United States for the mo at the moment uses masks more than we do, and yet their, uh, their experience seems to be getting worse all the time, whereas ours has, ours has got better. Um, so you're absolutely right, Tom, I think, to stress how little uh, anybody knows and what what a problem that causes for us as journalists because you know as you say who which experts to believe which politicians to believe um and how do we make up our minds and again we will arguably it is as as i suspect this is going to in some way be the answer to every question it is still too early to have it to have any with, with every country around the world is is involved in the same problem and they're involved in it in a very 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 early stage um, yeah. and who, hopefully, Louise, who knows that you will, you have a long time to make up your mind um, who to blame, essentially, but there'll be no shortage of candidates. <laughs> um, and we, the next question is from uh, Robert Lewis. The country will be facing a second wave in the winter. Do you expect a V-shaped recovery for the economy or the virus? Robert, do you, would you mind just asking that again? I think you were introduced a bit late. Can you hear me better now? Perfect. Excellent. Right. Some people are afraid that the rate of relaxation has been a bit reckless and the country will be facing a second wave of the coronavirus in the winter. Do you expect a V-shaped recovery for the economy or the virus? Well, I mean, it's looking almost certain like that there will be a, some sort of return of the virus in the winter um, and, and potentially does huge damage to the economy. But John Stone. Thanks, Robert. That's, like, I'll be honest, I do not know. <laughs> I, I think it's, I, think the, I can't tell the future, but I think we definitely have to be prepared for a, for a return of the virus um, I mean it sounds like the, the, it, 
it hasn't it doesn't seem to have happened in many countries so there's always been a bit of statistics yet there's always been a bit of statistical noise around you know um if you follow social media closely people will see on oh this country's gone up a bit and no, nothing has really come of it quite yet but it doesn't to me i guess just sort of thinking about it rationally it doesn't seem like we've nobody's proved that there's really been any herd immunity adopted that doesn't that doesn't seem to be a be something that a lot of people think is the case so it doesn't seem to me that the conditions have changed since the original outbreak enough for it not to happen again um that's and i should caveat that with you know i'm i'm very clearly a journalist and not a uh, and not a an epidemiologist albeit a journalist who has been covering this a bit but i can't see why there wouldn't be a second wave um and that's obviously very worrying in terms of the recovery, well, I mean, I think that follows on. They are obviously linked, aren't they? Because we, um, the question, the question is very well, well phrased. But one thing that the government, certainly at the start of the pandem pandemic, or maybe the media as well, we, maybe we were guilty too, was this framing between early lockdown and late lockdown. If we lock down now, the uh, you know it'll be bad for the economy, but we'll stay healthy. If we lock down later, it'll be good for the economy, but we'll you know, you know the the casualties might be worse but it, it hasn't turned out like that has it it's a question of um the uh if if we end up with a v-shaped um sorry if, if we end up with a v-shaped uh thingy uh, if the virus comes back then you know the economy is not coming back either um or it's rather not coming back um so yeah it's as I say, I can't predict the future, but I, I wouldn't be surprised as a layman if it did come back simply because I don't think the conditions have changed. Uh, bring in a, uh, there's a question on the, on the Q&A from Mike Felton, who says that the Secretary of State for Health claims that the NHS has been, open quotes, saved. The NHS has not been saved. So many services have been cancelled, outpatient services and not just planned surgery. Will this catastrophe be avoided in the case of a second wave? Now, it's a question that uh, it essentially alludes to concessions, if you like, that the health secretary made this, Matt Hancock made this morning on the radio, which is that whatever happened, the, the, the NHS, that the whole government strategy essentially has been to prevent the coronavirus becoming too severe for the NHS to handle. And I don't think that there is, I don't think there's any credible country that is suggesting that there won't be some form of return of the virus at a later stage because it's been suppressed by lockdown, lockdown can't last forever. And if it does come back, it comes back in winter. The NHS already has a huge backlog. Every, there's no doubt that the NHS is going to find it much harder to deal with coronavirus in the winter time than it has done in the spring. So the question really is what, and I'll ask you this, Kate, is what might it, how precarious do, do things look I mean, the, how overwhelmable is the NHS in the winter time, and how? I mean, what does it take for for the crises, if you like, that have been averted thus far, to 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 be much harder to avert later on in the year? Um, not very much is the short answer. Uh, the NHS has had to have um, extra injections of cash um, every winter for the last couple of years to deal with, with you know, what's kind of commonly termed with the crisis. Um, you're right, things like flu, um, but also norovirus, there is already uh, very often a problem in certain parts of the NHS once we get right to the height of winter. Flu season 
often starts in January, though it can start before that. So it depends when all these might hit. If they end up hitting at exactly the same time, then we're in big trouble. That's why Matt Hancock and Simon Stevens have announced that there's going to be a huge flu vaccination program. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that includes everyone from um, 50, the age of 50 up. That's an extra 10 million people who will be vaccinated against flu this year. I also would not be surprised if they just already run out of places within the NHS to give you your flu vaccine. So you would still get your flu vaccine, but I would expect that you will be told to go to your local high street chemist. And that's where you will get your free NHS flu vaccine this year, just because we're gonna to have to do it to so many people. Uh, there's also gonna be an attempt to try and make sure that um, lots of people who have asthma, children, there are lots of groups out there who already get free flu vaccines, but maybe don't take them up. It's not a huge, uh, it's not a great rate of uptake. It's gonna be a huge drive to try and make sure that they do that. What the NHS is looking at is, is potentially an incredibly, incredibly difficult winner. John Rentsel, Sorry, I know that's really depressing. <laughs> uh, John Rentsel, I'm going to ask you a question from the Q&A as well from Karen Corbett, which is what was the point of promoting herd immunity if no one knew or knows if you can get it more than once? Well, I don't think that's correct. I don't think the government, I, I, I mean, I fully accept that the government protestations that uh, that herd immunity was not the policy uh, it was it was uh, it was just the consequence they were just describing what would happen if the virus was allowed to run unchecked and they thought it probably was going to to run unchecked i mean what's interesting about oh, sorry, john can i just could you, perhaps it's only for my benefit are you are you saying that the government never pursued a herd immunity policy no of course they didn't no they their policy they, they thought they couldn't they thought that you were going to arrive at herd, herd immunity anyway, that there was no possible way of avoiding that. And therefore, the, the purpose of government policy was to try and control the spread of the virus as much as possible, to control the flow of cases, to try to prevent the NHS being overwhelmed. Once they started being successful at that, um, the whole policy changed because you, they realised that actually you could control this and that, you know, it wasn't going to spread to the whole population uh, straight away uh, or possibly ever if, the, if a vaccine is invented so you know and again with the usual caveat of me not knowing anything i mean i would say it's possible that there may not be a second way I mean, i think we ought to at least consider that possibility i mean it seems absurdly uh, optimistic but you know there isn't anywhere in the in the world where there's been a full-blown outbreak which has been brought uh, under control as it has been in this country uh, where we currently have no more deaths than you would expect at this time of the year uh, in total, um, and there's been no there's been no country like that where where the number of deaths has started to go up again. Uh, yeah. So you know it may be that it isn't going to come back, and that this policy, this whack-a-mole policy of of containing outbreaks, uh, I mean that might work. I mean this this sounds ridiculously um, Pollyanna-ish, but uh, you know it's possible. It's certainly true that we've all shouted at people in parks and people, huge gatherings of people on beaches, blaming them for this inevitable spike in infections that a suitable lag of, has now passed and it hasn't necessarily come to light. So, um, Robert, I'm, I haven't asked you what your view is, if you're, if you're, which horse you're backing, economic failure or mass death or both. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, Rob, are you... Are you 
are you bullish or bearish on the economy or, or on or on the general health of the nation or neither sorry Robert, i don't know if you can hear me robert i was trying to ask your your view. oh <laughs> i'm sorry i thought you were speaking to john <laughs> <laughs> oh, i do i do more than enough of that don't worry oh. Okay. Oh no, it's. Uh, I mean, we we don't know what we don't know, and if I if I could foretell the future, I'd be out buying lottery tickets. Um, but uh, I mean, I've got a son in California, and and they've just locked back down again. So uh, you know, I think you know the all all the all the balls are in play. Um, the ONS figures will be out tomorrow, and they've been flat for a few weeks. So I fear they might turn up. We'll see. Fear this question is going the same way as the previous two in the into the we shall see category, which may, oh, may be a common theme. Um, thank you very much, Robert. And we will move straight on to question four from David Hall. Good evening. Well, does the panel think that the COVID-19 pandemic will, will it quicken the pace of devolution in the UK? John Stone. Ah. Thank you. Um, great question. So, again, same caveat, can't tell the future, but I think it's, um, if you look at how it's been dealt with so far by the devolved administrations, I mean, actually, let me, let me preface this with um, a sort of personal experience of writing about, um, about, about the, uh, the lockdown and the pandemic. Um, as a journalist, often you're very used to writing the, uh, the term UK or Britain, in many cases in this pandemic, I've had to be very careful to write England, and that's very notable because people do get upset, and it's also correct. Um, you know, this has been a case where uh, probably the most important uh, national policy dilemma in since the Second World War has been essentially determined on an entirely devolved basis, and I can't think really of a parallel of that. And it seems that, to be honest, if I, I, I live in England, I, I don't live in Wales, I don't live in Scotland or Northern Ireland, but it does seem that if I, I think most people, my impression is that most people who live in those, um, those uh, nations seem to be relatively happy with the way that their devolved administrations have dealt with it. Perhaps even, you know, quite grateful that it's not Westminster that's, that's running, uh, that's running that, the show there. So, I mean, again, can't predict the future, but if there is an effect on it, I would expect it to be an, an accelerant effect or uh, it depends what you mean by devolution as well. It could be, you know, Evo Max or it, I think we're all aware that it could be Scottish independence. There's the, the idea of a United Ireland as well. Um, that sort of thing, perhaps substantially increased powers for the, what is now was in fact renamed during the, during the pandemic, the Welsh parliament. Um, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's entirely possible. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? As John's saying, um, ultimately, the question of devolution, eh, the, the, the big question on that is Scottish independence or not. And I'm not convinced that anything that's happened in the last four months, you only get Scottish independence once you get a referendum and once more than 50% of Scottish people vote yes in it. Now, however teetering steps we take towards that place, I still think there's a giant leap to get over that, that particular obstacle. And... Uh, like John, I am English, um, um, and the other John, um, and it's interesting that actually, no, I'm, what this, I'm, I'm, <laughs> carry on. What this has revealed, really, to, certainly to me, is that the devolved administrations have more power than perhaps they were given credit for. Now, people suddenly seeing that Scotland is doing X, Wales is doing Y, Northern Ireland is doing Z, 
strengthens the case for you know, full independence for any of them. Arguably, it demonstrates that the current structures potentially work quite well, but each individual person will have their own, have their own view on that. Um, and I know that Kate um, is not English and also spent a long time working for a Scottish newspaper, so perhaps I should have asked her first. Yes, I, I should say I'm from the um, part of Northern Ireland um, that's very close to Scotland. So I've always had a kind of slightly Scottish twinge to my accent, but I am Northern Irish. Um, uh, I think I disagree with you that nothing has happened in the last couple of months and it's, it's convoluted and torturous, uh, but bear with me. Um, the Scottish Tories came out uh, quite heavily uh, on the weekend when it emerged that Dominic Cummings had gone to Durham. And it was a little bit belated. And then whenever they came out strongly against Dominic Cummings, it was very tough words. And the reason for that is the Scottish Parliament elections next year. And the Scottish Tories are looking at the devastation of Scottish Labour and worried that the SNP are gonna get another um, majority. And another majority will mean uh, another independence referendum. Uh, the many, many senior people in the Scottish Tories believe some, there is some disagreement uh, within the party on that and some people down Westminster disagree with that. Uh, but it is definitely a concern and uh, a senior minister said to me uh, last week he thought Scottish independence is the untold story of the 2019 general election result because it's game on if you're the SNP at the minute. So, so I think it's a fascinating question. Will we have more devolution or will we have um, independence and the break of the, of the UK? And do you think that those things are uh, different routes on the same path or do you think they're wildly different things? And that depends obviously on your, on your political stance. Um, I think it's also interesting. I mean, I have a lot of, you know, um, if you know anything about um, Irish politics, my surname being Devlin, means I have a lot of relations who believe in a united Ireland. And even they have thought on an all-Ireland basis in a way that I have never seen them before. But the reality of being an island has hit home to a lot of people um, in a very interesting way. Sinn Féin were also doing incredibly well uh, politically during this. Uh, but unfortunately, Michelle O'Neill um, uh, broke social distancing at a, at a Republican funeral a fortnight ago and that has really um, in, in it, it's a very much a dominant coming situation a lot of people are very upset by not being able to go uh, their granny's funeral and social distancing um, John Rental, I mean, um, of course one of the big questions has been over the last couple of months or um, the way that Nicola, Nicola Sturgeon has liked to make a few of the nationwide announcements before Boris Johnson, arguably in quite a cynical way, because she tends to say meetings. Um, I know she said today that um, the, um, the constitutional questions are something like, something like they're a long way in the future. We're, we're, not, we're not looking at them. Um, I think I vaguely know your views, but I'm interested to see, I mean, do you think Nicola Sturgeon, it's, it's interesting that people seem to have praised Nicola Sturgeon's handling of the, of the outbreak and Boris Johnson has been damned for it, even though the responses really have been very, very similar, apart from essentially the way that they carry themselves in press conferences, the things that they say, 
the behaviour of Dominic Cummings, and specifically that Dominic Cummings wasn't sacked in the way that the Scottish Chief Medical Officer was got rid of quite quickly. But do you think that Nicola Sturgeon has taken, has any moral high ground over the last few months? Do you think she's been entirely cynical by pretending not to be playing constitutional politics while actually playing it? Or Of course. I mean, uh, he's a very good, uh, she's a very good politician and I'd love to um, serve my purpose on this panel by disagreeing with everyone. But uh, on this question, I can't. I think the, I think the coronavirus has increased the pressure uh, towards uh, Scottish independence and indeed towards, um, towards the United Ireland. I think uh, that's, I mean, for two reasons. One is Nicola Sturgeon uh, has been allowed to shine. I mean, she is a brilliant politician and she has handled it brilliantly. Although, as you say, her policies have been exactly the same, although she uh, banned, uh, she required masks to be worn in shops um, a few days earlier than, than, than England. Um, and the other reason is, of course, you know, when you've got a pandemic, um, people want to close borders. Uh, you know, the Lake District wants to stop people coming to the Lake District on holiday. Cornwall want, doesn't, doesn't want holidaymakers arriving carrying the virus from London. Um, and the same applies to Scotland. Uh, you know, you've seen those, those um, sensible people uh, on the Scottish border shouting at uh, English lorries to uh, F off back to, back to England. <laughs> I mean, that kind of instinct is, is, is driving, um, you know, separatism. And, you know, I'm, I'm a very, very strong supporter of uh, Scotland remaining part of the United Kingdom, but I fear for the worst. And I think, uh, you know, David's asked an extremely good question there. David, can I ask you what's compelled you to ask about this particular topic? Okay, thank you. It's really good. Um, some really good panel answers. I'm ask, asking this question from North Wales, and um, obviously, as we've come through the initial emergency phase, and we've seen we've seen different approaches in the in the three devolved nations of the UK. The interesting bit is we we move to the phase of living with the virus is whether or not there's any pressures in England, which makes up eighty five percent of the population of the UK. What what um, what happens in England in terms of devolution to the to the city regions and, and the counties and as we as as the parts of England start to to manage the virus and the various flares up and lockdowns is whether or not we see any steeper devolution in the English regions. Um, interesting. I've, I've, I've I've come to you right at the end, and I'm not going to be able to get any of our panelists to to come back to you on that. But there will be other events. Um, thank you very much, David. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and the next question, which is the penultimate question, is from Caroline Prudames. Prudames? Prudames? Caroline Prudames. Prudames, yeah, that's great. Lovely to be here. Um, my question is, what's the current Westminster perception of and or mood towards Dominic Cummings post Barnard's Castle Gate? particularly given the strong feelings against him after the events came to light? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure Westminster has a united perception on a, on a question like that. But I'll ask uh, John Rental first. Oh, well, no, but I'm, I'm going to be contrary because I actually quite like Dominic Cummings. I think he's, uh, I think he's interesting. Uh, and I think uh, uh, he's got a lot, of, uh, a lot to offer. And actually, what, what I really object about with him is not the fact that he went to, to Durham, although that was obviously, you know, is going to look terrible. I thought the worst thing he did was when he got back and tried to justify himself 
was uh, was editing his blog so that he could say that he predicted the coronavirus. And I think, unfortunately, that that should blow his credibility uh, out of the water. And it's n nothing to do with you know going going off to Durham. I mean, I can I can understand the panic and wanting to look after his family, uh, and I'm actually prepared to be very tolerant of that. But but pretending you predicted the uh, coronavirus when you didn't, I think, is is beneath contempt. Mm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt that he was in a very difficult situation, but there's also no doubt that he knew he was doing the wrong thing by virtue of the fact that he declined to phone Boris Johnson and ask him. And, and what I found especially surprising about the whole Cummings debate is this sort of arguably almost certainly retrofitted story to, to show that the, the rules weren't technically broken. And, and then this debate, did he break the spirit of the rules? Did he break the letter of the rules? But unfortunately, what did happen by, by his own admission is that, and it's very sad, is that his son and his wife had to go to a hospital in Durham because his son was ill during the night. And that really means the debate is not about whether the spirit or the letter was broken. The entire point of the lockdown was broken. At, at that time, there's a PPE shortage. It was being diverted to where it was needed most, i.e. London. And Dominic Cummings' family were... Were left London and were treated elsewhere, spreading the virus around the country, bringing paramedics into contact with it that otherwise wouldn't have been. And that, in my view, is the most damning aspect of all. And I find it really depressing, whatever he has to offer, and he clearly has lots to offer, um, having, despite having he's polarised the country by, through Brexit, and that will always be something that he has to carry with him. But I don't think there is any doubt, really, that he was obliged to resign. And the fact that he hasn't, um, just sort of chips away at this growing lack of credibility around, I mean, he's not a politician, but, but, all poli but both parties, are, I mean, the Labour in argument is slightly better position than they were last year, have just this sense that nobody ever quits, you just carry on. And I think there's definitely, a Westminster is not as depressed as maybe it has been recently, but, but they all have to bear some, there are consequences for them when, when all of the public generally, no matter what side of the political divide they come from, just have this growing cynicism and this growing sense that there isn't really much honour in it, in it anymore. I mean, there's not really any doubt that he'd done enough to quit, but just didn't because he didn't want it. I mean, I don't know what you think, John Stone. Yeah, so, so I haven't written too much about Cummings myself because I tend to focus on the policy aspect, but as someone with a little bit of distance from it, the impression that I get is that you know, Westminster, the lobby, lo loves this idea of a sort of a Rasputin figure. You've all, it always, it always crops up. So you had, you know, a, an advisor, an overmighty advisor who's really running the show. And I don't know to what extent it's true with Cummings. It sounds like he does have a lot of influence, the fact that he wasn't sat. But you, you see it recurring all the time, Seamus Milne with Labour, I mean, Alistair Campbell, that, that sort of, it, it kind of, it's a, uh, Steve Hilton, I mean, more of maybe a figure of fun, I don't know, but they, 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 it always comes back. And I think when the, the narrative, so to speak, has kind of got your scent in that way, it's very difficult for, for journalists and uh, the, the sort of, the Westminster sort of, um, whirlwind to kind of forget you and i i think somebody asked in the q a actually whether you know whether he would whether his days were numbered or whether whether he would get his comeuppance and i i think that you know I, i'm not sure when it doesn't sound like there's really very much it sounds like the government's willing to take a lot of flack to um 
to keep this guy in the team. But, I mean, everybody's political career does end. And um, if you don't like the guy, then, uh, you know, you can probably take some comfort in he's not going to be in government forever. And um, you can probably, uh, you know, you, and that, that actually applies to all, all political figures you don't like. You, you can take a lot of comfort by thinking, thinking yeah, this, this guy's going to have his day one day. And uh, he's, uh, he's, not gonna, he's probably going to be quite upset one day with, uh, with how things are going. Well, I suppose that, Carolyn, the wisdom in your question is that, um, is, you know, if you hate Brexit, you're going to hate Dominic Cummings, probably, and then you're going to seize upon this incident um, as, as, as it was seized upon, and everyone, he became a sort of a very intense hate figure. But, but Kate, I guess the question that Caroline is asking is, you know, did, did anybody, do you think that incident actually changed anyone's mind about Dominic Cummings? Because, you know... Yeah, I do, actually, and, and uh, in a really important way because I think it's changed a lot of Tory MPs' um, feelings towards him, not necessarily because of their own opinion, but because of that opinion that you just articulated is what they're getting from an awful lot of their constituents and they can't ignore it. And it's especially problematic, I think, for Boris Johnson because uh, some who still have concerns are what we call these red wall Tories and they won seats from Labour uh, last year and helped give Boris Johnson his majority. And they're incredibly crucial for the next five years and to securing the next majority. And there's concerns within that group and that should worry Boris Johnson. Caroline, can I ask if your mind has in, in any way been changed on Dominic Cummings over the last whatever it is, two months, if, 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 if you had a perception of him that has been altered in any way by, by what happened? So, as a current public servant, I'm not actually going to be drawn on that specifically. I'm not, not on my own perspective, but I am particularly interested. That Kate was bang on the money of kind of what I wanted to listen to, actually, which was just the perception, particularly within uh, the Conservative Party, I guess, and the fact that, you know, so many MPs, did actually come out against him in the end and kind of how that must feel now and the potentially kind of stressful dynamic that perhaps might exist. Uh, so yeah, I'm just really interested to hear what Kate had to say, but uh, no personal perspectives shared today from me. <laughs> I mean, from my own personal perspective, it was great to just have an old fashioned Brexit bogeyman poke up and then a, a, good, a good week of tearing into him, which is essentially my job. And then back to the coronavirus story, which is far too complicated for me to understand. So manna from heaven, as far as I'm concerned. But that may not be the most pressing matter. But thank you very much, Caroline. And the last question is from Sarah Diaz. Sarah. Hello, panellists. I enjoy your writing. My question is, what will it take for the new leader of the Liberal Democrats being elected this summer to make any impact with the public, the media, and the commons? The road, the road ahead for the Lib Dems, John Rental, where does it start? <laughs> a, long way, a long way back. I wouldn't start from here if I were there. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I think it's probably going to be Ed Davey, isn't it? Um, and he's, a, you know, he's a, he's a lovely chap and he's a, and he's a good, solid uh, Liberal, but Goodness had a good me. day today, Ed, Ed Davey. Had a very good day today. It was him who secured the essential concession from Boris Johnson at Prime Minister's question that there that there would be a public inquiry, and it'd be harder for him to 
wriggle out of that one, given that it was made in the House of Commons. Oh, um, indeed. Um, uh, but, you know, that doesn't solve the problem that the Liberal Democrats face, which is that uh, Keir Starmer uh, is, uh, is a much acceptable figure to the sort of people who might might vote Lib Dem than uh, Jeremy Corbyn ever was. I mean, that's, that's the problem in a nutshell. Um, and Boris Johnson is also trying to colonize the center ground with his, uh, his um, you know, one nation liberal Tory approach. So um, I think uh, Ed Davey has got his, his work cut out and I've got no idea how he's going to uh, solve that problem. Well, that is, I mean, that is interesting. I mean, I, I, I wrote a, piece about uh, last year about I, th I think it was on the Lib Dems 30th birthday I, I actually can't remember I think that would have been last year or maybe, maybe it was their 35th birthday I, I can't remember and I spoke to lots of senior Lib Dem people um, about that and one of them explained it explained to me that actually when they had their peak if you like uh, under Charlie Kennedy in the Blair years the point was that the, the question was where's the Lib Dem base gone because it was very hard to work that out um, and it was explained to me that actually under Blair, where the Lib Dems had success was attacking the Labour from the left, you know, on ID cards, on, on 40 day detention. And that that base went to Corbyn um, over the last five years. And that, that is where their natural voter went. Now, I'm not really sure if that means that arguably, although, although Labour is not in power, which makes it rather more difficult, but, those who are to the left of a centrist Labour potentially might find a home in the, in the Lib Dems as they once did 20 years ago, although with the, over, with the hangover from the coalition, maybe that's harder. This is why the Lib, all the questions about the Lib Dems are so intrinsically complicated because they're about the sort of explosion of the protest vote to a certain, to a certain extent. But are you absolutely sure that Keir Starmer being leader of the Labour Party rather than Jeremy Corbyn being leader of the Labour Party is bad news for the Lib Dems. Well, um, yes, I am because I mean, you know, in the end, being to the left of Keir Starmer is not going to be is not going to be a large space in in British politics. I mean, being to being to the left of Tony Blair in government after the Iraq War is a very different uh, proposition, and that gave them a lot of space. But then, then of course, what did they do? They went into coalition with the Tories. So you know, where they construct a base in British politics is uh, is a mystery to me. Uh, John Stone, our policy editor, um, if you were advising the leader of the Liberal Democrats, what ideas might you suggest to him for how to build their base back up? So I think the in terms of policy ideas and things like that, it would be difficult. I, I don't think it's really a question actually that much. I think it's very possible to overfocus on political positioning of the Liberal Democrats at a national level. And this question, Sarah, I don't know if you're a Liberal Democrat yourself, but they, one thing about the, the, the you, if you cast your mind back to when the Lib Dems did best in seats, that was um, under Charles Kennedy, they, that took decades to build up and it wasn't decades of um, often hyperactive Lib Dem press officers sending out emails to us or, you know, someone doing a great job in PMQs. It was local campaigns, a different campaign really in every seat, building up credible local figures, building up presence on councils. And that was essentially destroyed on, under the coalition. A lot of that infrastructure was gone. I mean, councillors, I mean, I've 
you know, I've met a couple of very dedicated Lib Dems and these, it's, it's very, a lot of these people are very dedicated, you know, it's sort of going canvassing on your birthday, sort of thing, bring a few leaflets with you on the way to the restaurant. That's not unheard of. Like, it, it's, a, it's a family for a lot of people. And I, I think that that infrastructure is what secured uh, that big caucus of Liberal Democrat MPs under Charles Kennedy. As much as, yeah, he, he played his cards right in political positioning. What you guys said about he was to the oh, left. Hurry made... you up, sir. Sorry, say that again? You have to hurry you up, sir. We are, oh, all so, our feedback so, suggests that so our viewers love, love this stuff to end on time. So yeah. I'll ask you one question, Kate, because someone in the comments has made a very sensible point, which is that I thought this webinar was meant to be about the pandemic rather than the Liberal Democrats. So I will ask you, Kate, if there's anything, if there are any opportunities there for Ed Davey, whoever it may be. Yeah, there is. No, absolutely there is. There absolutely there is. Um, and it's because... Um, there's uh, no signs of a resurgence of um, Scottish Labour. And um, uh, in 2014, Scottish Labour had 41 seats in the House of Commons, and they now have one. And there's no signs that Keir has done anything that will help them uh, so far um, to win them back. It's a long road back for Scottish Labour, and that creates more chance, I would say, uh, potentially of another hung parliament. Good news for the, the only way potentially is up, there certainly isn't very much room to go down. Um, so well, thanks everyone. Uh, thanks John, uh, well both Johns, thanks Kate. Um, most of all, thanks to everyone for, for joining us. Um, apologies we weren't able to get to everyone, but coronavirus isn't going anywhere and neither is the independent. So hopefully you'll be kind enough to try again next time. There will be other independent premium virtual event series and we'll hope to see you all there. If you're not yet a subscriber, you can sign up to, this is the bit where you, where, um, John Fubber on Pod is the Word sort of pretends that he's talking about normal stuff but is in fact selling products. I'm doing my best. Um, if you're not yet a subscriber, you can go to Independent Premium and get early bird access and free tickets to all our events at independent.co.uk forward slash subscribe. And you get your first three months for three pounds. And these are the next two events. They are Travel the Way Ahead, a live Q&A with our travel correspondent, Simon Calder, on the 29th of July. And the next one, which is very close to the independence heart, um, given where this pandemic began, almost certainly, uh, is preventing the next pandemic, which is all about why we need to shut down the illegal wildlife trade in order to prevent pandemics similar to COVID-19 in the future. And that is on the 5th of August. So thanks very, very much to uh, our experts and our audience. And we'll see you next time. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Really hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Remember, if you want to take part in events like that one and have access to exclusive content, then click the link in the description of this podcast and subscribe to Independent Premium.